welcome back to Paris Lesbos, a podcast where we learn about the lives and work of mostly sapphic women artists in mostly the era between 1880 to 1945. We have some leeway either side, really. No one can stop us. One of us is a pixie. Guilty as charged. The other is called Rena. We're mostly in Europe today with this month's subject, but we start in the U.S. with warnings for suicide. As always, these women live charmed lives. Janet Planner is mainly remembered as a journalist and the occasional subject of friends and acquaintances' literary exploits, a la one part of the journalist pair Nip and Tuck in Juna Barnes' Nightwood, for example. Also, if you've seen The French Dispatch by Liz Anderson, she is part of that milieu that inspires it. As always, we start at the beginning. Born in 1892 in Indianapolis to Frank and Mary Flanner, Janet was the second of three girls. The family was middle class as their father was a mortician, and do not think Gomez Adams. We're not talking that type of aesthetic here. No, more dreary and drab and the kind of thing that causes your kids discomfort because they think they're going to get bullied at their private school that your mortuary business funds. Right, because they're middle class. They're not quite upper class. No, apparently it's because their dad was a mortician. Oh, really? It was just the job. Yeah, it was just the job. Her mother, on the other hand did some poetry and theater work, neither of which appears to have been lucrative at all. So an interesting early background there. As to our protagonist's childhood, Janet apparently got in trouble frequently. And if you want to talk about interesting, there were times her mother locked her in a closet for misbehaving, though the closet at least had a window. Oh, if it has a window... The neighbors would see her crying through that window and come and get her released. Thank goodness someone had some sense. Janet was also not a conventional child of the turn of the century, at least compared to the rest of the subjects on this podcast. She knew how to shoot a rifle by age seven and was hunting snakes and squirrels that she would then skin. All right, Annie Oakley. (laughs) She also knew early on that she wanted to write stories rather than be an actress like her mother wanted. So her mother, who was not making a lot of money out of being an actress, decided that her daughter should be an actress? I get some vibes here of trying to live a bit vicariously through your child. Yeah, I guess we've kind of heard of that before with some of these women. Sounds like a great family dynamic. As well, keep in mind, I don't know for certain the dead never pick up the phone when I call. That's true, that's true. By the time Janet graduated high school, her older sister was studying in Germany. Janet also ended up spending two years overseas, mostly in Germany, as a pre-college tour of Europe with her family. It was on this trip that she discovered she did not like beer or militarism, But she did like a certain German officer's wife. Ooh. Carlotta, as she was known, was not much older than Janet, 
so I'd guess about 20. It sounds as if they were joined at the hip throughout the trip, and Janet kept Carlotta's picture with her for the rest of her life. Wow, so this was a deep attachment. According to Janet, years later, the trip was cut short, though, when her father unexpectedly lost about $5,000 while backing a failed invention. So the crypto of the era. Along with, I have a bridge to sell you. Right. Still, all was going well until 1912, when Frank was found dead of suicide in his own mortuary. Now, I cannot tell you if that 5K loss precipitated feelings of depression or anything like that in the two years leading up to his death. In the biography Genet by Brenda Wineapple, there are reports that friends found him more distracted, despondent, and irascible rather than his usual warm self. Unfortunately for the Flanner family, Frank's death was the headline of the front page evening news. Oh, yeah. No, no biggie. This is going to be socially fine for them. It, it was a scandal like you imagine it. It was then fueled by gossip and various theories such as his wife pushed him too hard. He was having an affair. His partner wanted him out of the business. Janet would write a fictional version of these events 12 years later in her novel The Cubicle City, in that version, his dreams are crushed by a ruthless business partner, and ill health plus a fatalist mindset then leads the character version to commit suicide at the end of the book. While Janet's fictional version does have some marital problems that are hovering in the corners of the text, she puts emphasis on the business partner part of it. In real life, Janet did believe that partner, her uncle, had tricked her father out of his part of the business, contributing to his decline. Wow, what a fun family. There is also the fact that Janet and her fictional counterpart feel guilty despite having done nothing wrong, but that's understandable. I'd say everyone tends to blame themselves as a messed up coping mechanism after such events. Though, I note, I am not a psychologist or anything close to that. Just an opinion. Also, at the same time as she felt guilty, Janet was also pissed at her father. Later in life, she'd say he didn't keep up with his responsibilities as he should have and would call him a person who didn't live up to his potential. It's not surprising that this created mixed feelings about suicide in general that cropped up again when friends like Hemingway would commit suicide decades later. Eight months after his death, 20-year-old Janet left Indianapolis to attend college for the fall of 1912. She stuck out from her classmates being a bit older and already having a gray streak in her hair. Janet, it turned out, was one of those people whose hair loses its color early. Her social life went well. She managed to meet like-minded people. Her academics did not go well. She would skip class, not turn in coursework, and only barely passed what sounds like half of her classes for the first year. The second was not any better. By spring of 1914, she decided to withdraw and returned home after two years. Janet would give various reasons for this decision, but it appears to be a combo of not caring for some of her courses, hence bad grades, 
a struggle to deal with the regulations of the institution on her life and feeling too old compared to everyone else. The biographer Wineapple also hazards a guess that the death of Janet's father was still affecting her. Yeah, I'd imagine. I do not picture her being happy to return home after giving up college, though. I have not met or experienced a young adult who does not chafe at living with one's parents or mother, as was the case here. But after escaping Indianapolis for a nine-month stint working at a dressed-up juvenile prison in Philadelphia, Janet was back at home yet again. At this point, I assume you can see the pattern of not knowing what to do with herself, though she did know that she wanted to be a writer, a profession long known for its poverty. Otherwise, the only new thing is that she was calling herself Jeanette. Ah, and we've we've seen, spoiler alert, that the biography is called Jeanette, so I love this, all these different versions of her name. That doesn't show up till later, though. Instead, <laughs> instead, we have the year 1917, when Janet gets a job. A friend of an acquaintance got her hired onto the Indianapolis Star to review vaudeville and burlesque shows. Ooh, spicy. Her mother was not pleased at this selection of theater, but Janet loved it. Her boss must have liked this arrangement as well, because she was promoted at the end of the year to assistant drama editor with her own column, under the name Janet rather than Jeanette. It appears to have been a column about whatever art she happened across, or thought about, which reminds me of the choosing of the podcast subjects and the current backlog. And I also feel like this is really in the spirit of what her mother wanted her to do, even if it's not exactly what she'd pictured. During this time, Janet still lived at home on a salary of $25 a week. Things didn't stay that way for long, though. In 1918, she surprised everyone by marrying an old college friend, William Lane Rem, who the biographer Wineapple describes as revering her, but not quite fathoming her. Further, that biographer thinks Rem might have pressured her for a quick wedding because he thought he could be drafted at any moment. Later, Janet would confess to a relative that she married to get out of Indianapolis. Either way, the two now moved to New York City, only for Janet to return to her mother a month later. It appears that no one knows why. But a few months after that, she went back east. A lot of shilly-shallying over here. It's in New York the winter after World War I that Janet meets Solita Solano, a fellow writer, okayish actress, and the love of her life. So she doesn't know this at the time, I assume? No, she may know only two out of the three. They met in a time where both were distressed. Solita, because she was demoted from her newspaper reporter job, perhaps because she criticized a Schubert's play, what is a Schubert's play? Please tell me. Is it a play at the Schubert Theater? Is it a play by someone named Schubert? What is the context here? It appears to have been at the Schubert Theater. Mm. And was it just like a, a really good play that everyone loved or something? Or I'm not entirely sure. I know she has criticized a different Schubert play before. So I cannot tell you about this second instance. What I can tell you about the first instance 
is that her first critique of one of their plays resulted in apparently such a furrow over the bad notice that uh, the Schuberts canceled all their advertising in that newspaper because they refused to support any paper where she was a writer. And there was this whole big hullabaloo over them boycotting what was at the time appears to be the Boston Traveler. Hmm. Gotcha. So, so she is speaking truth to power and power doesn't like it. By all accounts, uh, Janet has a more personal problem for distress right at this moment. She was pregnant. Oh, yeah, that's certainly a life change. And now there was never a kid born to Janet Planner, so no one is certain if there was a miscarriage or an abortion. Either way, the marriage is starting to fail. Yeah, I mean, it's looking like she has met what we have said is the love of her life, so that would do it. Does she like men? Do we know this? It's funny you should say that, because up here we have an entire two paragraphs about that very question. Aha! As Janet is struggling with whether to end this marriage... She apparently spent time going back through various memories. In the Genet biography, there is mention of seeing the dancer Cleo de Merode, and I say Cleo here rather than the written Olio, because that appears to be a typo. She's I, been marginalized. I know of no one named Olio de Merode as a famous Bella Epoch dancer, okay, but I do know of a Cleo de Merode. Now, back to Janet watching her dance. So our protagonist had written a short story not long after that performance, The Portrait of Our Lady. You'd be forgiven for thinking it was something religious. In reality, it was a story about a dancer of great mystical beauty, Therese Manet. In the early version, she's a remote, almost religious symbol whose photo in the window of their home saves a Jewish family during a pogrom. The biographer Wineapple notes that persecution follows Therese's arrival in this early version. The later version, from the time of Janet's marriage falling apart, has Therese more present and erotic as she inspires lust in every man she encounters, but only an aesthetic pleasure, like viewing a painting in a young boy. Here, Wineapple suggests that the same feelings were inspired in Janet, Namely, something disturbing and full of promise. Mm -hmm. So to answer your question, no, Janet did not like men. She was gay, not bi. So it took a bit of time to get there. As I say, we have a bit of a light bulb moment here past all the panic and unease Janet probably felt for years before the start of 1919. It does not appear that her husband knew initially that she was going to leave him or anything like that but by the time she did leave him no one was surprised so she's taking her time she's thinking it out but she has kind of come to her conclusion likewise no one was surprised that he was the one who suffered through this janet wasn't blind to it either and would feel remorse for years after for causing him pain 
Mm. Because he did love her, even if she didn't really love him in that way. Yes, and also it's like, he didn't do anything wrong to cause her to hurt him emotionally or anything like that. It's just, she's a lesbian. It took a while to realize. It's also pre-1920 when they get married. Mm-hmm. By summer 1921, Janet has left with Solita to go to Greece as ah. Solita. Sorry, the, the lesbian honeymoon location, of course. I thought the lesbian honeymoon location was specifically one island. Well, you know. Anyway, this is a work trip, not a honeymoon trip, because Solita has a reporter assignment that is footing the bill for the most part, and Janet has a small inheritance from her father. Got it. Strictly a work trip. Strictly business. I mean, there is some pleasure, but it is ostensibly a work trip. Now, after this, and it's essentially nation hopping for a while, until the fall of 1922, they end up landing in Paris. Now, the two of them quickly fell into the orbit of Sylvia Beach, her bookshop, and the rest of that set. On the flip side, both Janet and Solita branched out to the Natalie Barney side of 20s Paris. Though Janet would later downplay the amount of hanging out around tea tables till the end of the evening. How come? They all had some things in common, you see, like practicing polyamory and believing hypocrisy or possessiveness were bad in relationships. In fact, Janet admired Barney while claiming not to know her well because she said, if you weren't in love with her, which I certainly was not, you didn't know as much about her and you couldn't appreciate her as much either, which does not spell well for the episodes we did on her then. So, you said all this, but we still don't know. Why is she downplaying this? I mean, it sounds like they have a lot in common. So, for instance, as Wineapple states in her bio, Janet probably disagreed with the way Natalie appeared to commandeer the women in love with her when she talks about her having some sort of thrall over her lovers. There is also the fact Janet was more discreet about her love life than Natalie. So... We were saying, um, I didn't know her as well. I was better at it than she was. I don't know if I would say better. It's just like Janet's not out here writing thinly veiled novels describing cunnilingus like Natalie. (laughs) Toned it a bit down. That said, both women also shared a refusal to feel guilty over their sexual orientation and to be typecast as unhappy inverts as the slang went. It's during this time that Janet wrote her novel, The Cubicle City, that I referenced earlier, which was published in 1926. It would be her only novel, not because of the mixed reviews, but because she lost her enthusiasm for the next one. Instead, she met Harold Ross, who brought her onto The New Yorker as a writer starting at $40 a piece, which went quite a ways in Paris. It was also he who gave her the pen name Genet. As for her letters from Paris, they ranged in interest and were intended for a middle-class New York audience, though I am uncertain if even that audience would know of each person in the letters, as Janet never elaborated on who was who beyond their name and what they did recently. 
But everyone likes to listen to other people's gossip, so. I don't think Janet would enjoy being reduced to gossip columnist. <laughs> well, sorry. So what, what was she writing about for The New Yorker? Anything and everything. There's reports of Josephine Baker dancing. There's talk of whatever Colette was doing recently. I mean, those are some pretty big names. But so middle class New Yorkers didn't know who these people were at the time or? Not all of them. There's a Bonnie somebody or other used as an example by Ben Stock, but I'm not even sure who that is. Oh, nice. Janet also signed the divorce papers with her husband during this period. They agreed to claim that his change of residence meant he deserted her for the purposes of divorce. Ah, old divorce laws. So wild. As the 20s progressed, both her income and writing at The New Yorker expanded. She was eventually put on writing profiles on people like the dancer Isidore Duncan and the designer Paul Poiret. Soon after, Janet gave up the idea of writing novels altogether. It doesn't sound like she needs to. I mean, it sounds like she's pretty creatively fulfilled and being recognized for it. And now, short time skip here to the start of 1932. Janet was in love with Noelle Murphy, the widow of an American World War I soldier who died belatedly of effects of wounds after the war ended. Janet would visit her at her small farm near Orgival, to the northeast of Paris, while Salita had her own lover. That's not to say that they broke up. They didn't. They still kept a house together. So this really is, like full-scale polyamory happening right here. Oh yeah, think similar to Natalie Barney, polyamory only. Janet and Solita for a long time shared an apartment, unlike Natalie and any of her lovers except out of necessity. Now Janet probably met Noelle via her sister-in-law Esther Murphy Strachey, and a 1931 trip to Berlin that Janet tagged along with the two of them on. It was the sort of relationship that ignites fast. Admittedly, Noelle and Solita had similar personalities, so perhaps it wasn't surprising. Speaking of those two, they got on well, but didn't become friends despite Solita visiting Noelle in Orgival. But they weren't enemies. No, they weren't enemies. On the career front, Janet was briefly a translator. She translated some of Colette's Claudine novels. She then decided it was not her niche. She also tried her hand at short stories. A few were published in The New Yorker, and she briefly thought they might help jumpstart the brain juice for a novel. That didn't work out. Janet also began to take on any job that came her way as the difference between the U.S. dollar and the French franc shrank. In fact, Janet quipped that they might as well be paid in bananas because then they could at least eat those. Oh, no. Likewise, as the 30s progressed, she began to encounter more political events on her assignments. When she traveled through Germany in 1933 with four others, there was a time Nazi soldiers crowded round their dinner table demanding to see their papers and threatening deportation. This was in addition to the anti-Jewish signs that cropped up. Janet would sum up this year with the understatement, it had been a worrying kind of year. Yeah, I'll say. 
Paris was also changing around her. Her lover, Solita, once said, Nothing matters in France today but international money, the local gold standard, political riots, reforms, and Stravinsky. The Paris Americans knew and enjoyed the cabarets, cocktails at the Ritz, the fully Berger reviews, the smart plays, good restaurants, dressmakers' collections, and the hoopla on the hill still exist. But no one cares in Fugo. Everyone was glued to the news as World War II came hurtling towards them. Janet began to do work in London as well as Paris. You can imagine the toll constant travel took, but she didn't return to the U.S. and neither did Solita or Noel. In fact, they stayed through France declaring war on Germany for invading Poland in 1939. Noel stayed on further, but Solita and Janet fled in September through Bordeaux with 15,000 other Americans. They only sailed for New York three weeks later in October. That said, Janet didn't want to live through a France at war. She had been ready to leave during the crisis in 1938 that looked like it might break out, so she was also ready to leave in 1939. Yeah, that doesn't sound like a great place to be at that time. Now back in New York, Janet continued writing for The New Yorker, though not about Paris. It's during this time that she meets a new lover, Natalia Denesi Murray, a single mother working as an Italian broadcaster for the National Broadcasting Company. They met over a weekend trip on Fire Island. Wait, Fire Island? Fire Island? Like the gay paradise they keep on hearing about? Like from the movie Fire Island? Yes, it is that Fire Island, though my understanding is that during this time it was cheap, as I understand it now, Fire Island is hideously expensive. Right, as happens to all artsy places, that once once rich people discover that there's culture there, they must invade. <laughs> so, uh, Janet and Natalia are at Fire Island, living it up. Yeah, that's not to say that Janet was having a ball in New York. In fact, she'd call herself a coward for not returning to France and Noel. There was also the matter of Solita. They were still together, it seems, but Solita did not trust Natalia. She thought the Italian woman was cold, dishonest, and possessive. This was not the same at-ease, friendly atmosphere trio that Janet and Solita had made with Noel. In fact, there was tension as time went on and Janet moved to sublet part of Natalia's apartment. Things had changed as much as they ignored that fact, but Janet would not break away from her. Hence why Solita was still practically a part of the Flanner family, writing to Janet's sister Hildegard. It was not until the end of 1944 that Janet returned to France and Noël at Orgival. Despite not being as in love with her as when she left five years before, Janet didn't break up with her then, and yes, Noel had heard of Natalia from Hemingway earlier. Wait, Hemingway's been here this whole time? Hemingway has been a friend via Gertrude Stein's gatherings. Hmm, so he's, he's passing on all the gossip. I think they all pass on the gossip to each other. <laughs> Actually, I'd be curious what social media would have looked like between them all. Oh man, someone needs to do that, if they haven't already. 
Noel appears to have not had the misgivings Solita did, or if she did have them, she didn't say. Well, she didn't meet her, right? Not yet. She's been in France this whole time. Yeah, so that's not, you know, her girlfriend in America. I mean, is does she even have a girlfriend in America, or is it like a girlfriend in Canada? Janet's feelings of guilt did not abate the longer she was in Paris. So she went traveling through France, part of Germany, and Luxembourg for material for the New Yorker. Wow, that is certainly a time to do a Europe trip. By spring, Janet was walking through the liberated Ravensbrück and Buchenwald camps. This, she wrote Solita later, is beyond imagination. Matters were not helped in the weeks after VE Day, when Noel was accused of having informed on resistance fighters to the occupying Germans. Did she do it? It does not appear to have been so. Though Janet was still furious writing to Solita, Noel would strangle rather than have entertained a Nazi. Oh yes, it probably not. Janet's feelings also suffered from missing Natalia in New York City. Basically, she felt torn between the two. Her feelings for Noel had changed, and she still adored Natalia. That said, Noel tolerated Natalia from a distance as time went on, but would not have her live in Paris, while Janet would not permanently move to either the U.S. or Italy for Natalia. If you are wondering where Solita was in this quadrangle drama, she seems to have been chilling back in the U.S., handling Janet's finances and being a partial secretary, which, to be fair, she had done even before World War II and seemed fine with. Honestly, yeah. she seems like she's in the best place out of any of them right now. Yeah, and it may have been part of the reason people in the late 20s thought of her as Janet's mistress. Either way, this reminds me a bit of the bed-in-the-spare-room squabble between Romaine Brooks, Natalie Barney, and Dolly Wilde. Yeah, I see that. Between this drama and helping Alice talkless after Gertrude Stein's death, Janet was depressed. Months later, when a plane she had almost taken crashed, she actually said that she wished she had been on it. She had work, yes, but her schedule was exhausting. I would not be surprised if anyone called this burnout on top of relationship drama as Janet headed off to the Nuremberg trials in 1946. Wait, she's reporting on the Nuremberg trials. Yeah, no pressure. She did receive praise for that coverage, but that didn't remove the malaise. I would say this wasn't helped by her telling Noelle and Solita not to write her directly when she visited Natalia as letters from them to Janet upset Natalia. This does not seem healthy. Yeah, no red flags there. There would be ups and downs over the years after this, but roughly this state of affairs continued. You see, Janet couldn't bring herself to choose between Noel and Natalia. That didn't relieve the guilt either. One of the good things during all this stress was the publication of her nonfiction work, Men and Monuments, in 1957. You see, she may have abandoned novels, but Janet took up their nonfiction counterparts, of which there were several. In addition, she received an honorary degree from Smith College in the late 50s. I love it. Lesbian College finally giving her the recognition she deserves. Now, she was getting close to 70. 
so there were problems like arthritis. However, Janet didn't slow down. By the mid-1960s, she had also achieved a fair amount of recognition. She started appearing on talk shows and gave award speeches. How did all of these people feel about, um, you know, her uh, three girlfriends? Yes, she did still have three girlfriends. Her love life was still complicated. The biographer Wine April reports that friends once called her akin to a sailor with a lover in every port. A comparison I think she herself might have found amusing, considering some of the ribald humor that friends have reports of her doing. Oh? There is the story of her going to a concert one night, seeming to drift off, and then a young man stark naked streaking through the audience. And uh, when people asked her later if she'd seen him because they didn't think she had, she would retort, well hung. <laughs> There's also the story told by the composer Ned Rorim after he published his Paris Diaries book where she apparently asked him what on earth did his Quaker parents think about his pornographic diary. <laughs> he said she then looked at him reproachfully through her monocle, resembling a hip and handsome Amazon described disguised as George Washington playing Greek tragedy. <laughs> I cannot picture this. I don't know. I think that that sounds like my favorite drag king performance, and I need to see it immediately. If anyone could sketch out what that would look like, I would be less confused and Pixie would be highly amused. Yes, I'd be delighted. So she is at least known among her friends for being... Uh, fun and irreverent, but um, I guess discreet enough about her personal life so that it's not making too big waves. That does appear to be true. What also appears to be true is that Janet was still very much a workaholic traveling between the U.S. and Europe. Hell, the woman kept working after having a stroke and being put in the American hospital in Newley. Wow, so really everything for her work. Yeah, not that the world necessarily noticed how ill she might be, because she put on an energetic and witty persona for the public. Wow, so we're seeing a lot of this, like, she she knows how to craft her image to make sure that she is still seen as this active, working person, despite everything else that's happening. This ends in the mid-1970s when Janet gave up being a reporter and moved to New York City to live with Natalia permanently. This does not mean that she finally picked one. As Janet wrote in 1974 in a letter to Solita, Rarely does a day go by that I don't think of you. Yes, we have known each other very, very long. Solita then died in Orgival in 1975, at the start of Janet's permanent move to the U.S. Seeming disoriented in the aftermath of several small strokes, Janet then died in November 1978, on the way to the hospital at age 86. Most remember her for her work as a journalist, and she has even been called one of the most influential writers on the left bank in the 20s. Meanwhile, Janet herself once said, 
when I die, let it not be said I wrote for the New Yorker for 50 years. Let it be said that once I stood by a friend. Um, I, I hate to say it, but you have gone into depth about her work in the New Yorker. Who was the friend? I have no idea because it wasn't said in the biography, but I assume Alice Talkless. Oh, right. When, when helping her um, after her long-term partner. Yeah, that makes sense. Thanks for listening. Find us on your favorite podcast app or YouTube to learn more about the female and usually sapphic creatives of the Belle Epoque, Roaring Twenties, Beyond, and Before. We also take suggestions into account for future episodes. And remember, if you're going to have girlfriends who fight, make sure they're each in a different port. <laughs>